and welcome to episode 45 of Cultural Capital. I'm Andy Hazel. I'm Anders Furs. And I'm Eloise Ross. And this week sees the debut of a new section we're calling Andy's Blockbuster Filibuster. We'll be opening the Cultural Capital Film Diary and counting down our top three films about the ageing stars of stage and screen. But first, the film that's inspiring that top three, one of the high points of the Young at Heart Film Festival, the 1950 classic All About Eve. Honoured members, ladies and gentlemen, for distinguished achievement in the theatre, the Sarah Siddons Award to Miss Eve Harry. I'm going to take you to Margot. Oh, no. Oh, yes, she's got to meet you. She's quite a girl, this what's-her-name. Eve, I'd forgotten they grew that way. I take it she read well. It wasn't a reading, it was a performance. Brilliant, vivid, something made of music and fire. How nice. After all you've said, don't you know that part was written for Margot? It might have been 15 years ago. It's my part now. You're quite a girl. You think? Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. As Letterbox notes, All About Eve begins with the moment that Eve Harrington glimpses her idol at the stage door. Determined to take the reins of power away from the great actress Margot Channing, Eve manoeuvres her way into Margot's Broadway role, becomes a sensation and even causes turmoil in the lives of Margot's director boyfriend, her playwright and his wife. Only the cynical drama critic sees through Eve, admiring her, her audacity and perfect pattern of deceit. Based on Mary Orr's short story, The Wisdom of Eve, Joe Mankiewicz's 1950 film, All About Eve, is rightly hailed as a masterpiece of the golden age of Hollywood. Eloise, do you agree? Absolutely. Um, I don't think anyone could disagree. This is just such an incredible film, such sharp dialogue. I know you and I, Anders, had some um, exchanges before. I'm like, all I, when I was taking notes, all I wanted to do was just write down every single line of dialogue because yeah. it's so sharp and, um, you know, you talk about acerbic wit and this film is basically n- next to that in the dictionary. Um, sorry, that was a really bad <laughs> um, oh my God, no. description there. But anyway, um, I yeah, I love this film and I especially love – because it's called All About Eve, but its main character is essentially Margot Channing, Betty Davis's mm. character. But also the other four characters yeah. have voiceovers. And that, so I love what this does in breaking up that idea of it being a single protagonist narrative. Joseph Mankiewicz did that a bit. He had that famous film, A Letter to Three Wives, where a, a woman who remains unseen for the entire film has written letters, a, a letter to three wives saying, you know, I'm having an affair with one of your husbands and we've nicked off together. But you never see her and so he kind of breaks up that idea and I love that that happens in this film as well. Challenges that idea of that we are meant to align with and support a main protagonist and have one main, you know, main villain um, whom we kind of are against and it just happens really, really well and you never really know where you are in this film and mm, it's so yeah. great because none of the characters really do either. Even Addison and Eve um, have these moments of uncertainty and I think that that's really great. Andy? Yeah, I mean I think it's spectacular. I just can't get my head around this screenplay, like how phenomenal it really is. Uh, there was so many parts. I mean I, have, I hadn't seen it for a few years but it did surprise me with how incredibly quick-witted and how well um, put together it was. I also forgot how long it was as well. I think it's like two hours 15 or yeah, two hours yeah. 18 or something like that. Um, I, what I really loved was the way that there was con- this constant reference to class, like right from the very beginning. There's this idea that actors are kind of like elevated people and even there's even a point where Margot says all the religions of the world rolled into one and we're the gods and goddesses. And mm. then there's this, like within the same scene, she, Eve is described as a lamb alone in our big stone jungle. And it's like their stone jungle. It's, they, everybody realises what a ferocious and a horrible world this is, but they're all like enslaved to it. And it's interesting that Mankiewicz like constantly puts this idea that this, you can be like Addison DeWitt and be, have be this extremely well-dressed, affluent critic. Like he just makes it, you know, <laughs> and I couldn't quite get my head around how theatre actors make so much money and are so... Um, affluent, but it was a totally different time there, where, the, where there was just like matinees and you were just constantly working. Um, and so that was, yeah, that, I really loved that little glimpse into the into the um, the world. I also am intrigued to see how the readings of this film have changed over the years as well. 
Like if you look for queer readings now, there's this, there's deluges of information about how Eve and yes. Addison, you know, are, um, are actually gay. But Eve and Margot. Uh, I think it was uh, maybe yeah. I think well, even Addison both use. Um, oh right, right, right. Yes, I have known those that Addison is a is a queer character yeah. for sure, um, and that Eve directs her love. To, you know, is has misdirected um, her attention um, for sure, and then that final woman appears in that way as well. Yeah, um, I well, I mean, and there is that wonderful camp sensibility, particularly in Betty Davis's performance. Um, the I yeah, I agree. I think it's a fabulous film. Um, the and such a dark smart film about not only show business but um also the gender stuff i noticed was really interesting just how many times margot discusses you know, being a woman in the world and sort mm. of those kinds of conversations of relationships between men and women um are a major subject um in this film i think i saw it once years ago described as a um, exemplary case study in bitchiness and I, I sort of get that. Um, and, yeah, it is, it's just really fun to watch. And there's the dialogue sparkles, the performances are all universally excellent. I mean, particularly Betty Davis. Um, she does loom large here. We can maybe get into a deeper unpacking of her performance. But, yeah, I just think it's a classic for a reason. It's sort of like the prototypical showbiz story about showbiz and i think you know now that we're all sort of looking at showbiz in this sort of post harvey weinstein world i think it's very interesting to re-watch all about eve in that context and see that it still has a lot to say 60 what 67 years after it was mm, made yeah yeah i really enjoy that how i've come over the years to kind of appreciate more and more and baxter's performance because it's sort of it i mean she's outshined by betty davis and george sanders and even you know celeste holm and gary merrill are mm. kind of more mm. outspoken in the film at least um and they are uh, more admirable at least in their actions and so Anne baxter i i never really noticed her and then I noticed her in other films and now I'm more familiar with her and I think she's like supremely talented. So, so talented. But in this film, it's really interesting what she does and this is kind of obvious, but, you know, you never... She's this incredible actress that everyone fawns over and has a million accolades, but you never see her acting mm. on the stage, never acting in a stage environment. But the whole point is that she's always acting in her private life, you know, in these interactions with the people, manipulating people around her and even in intimate settings, you know, that she's she's always acting. And in her final speech at the awards ceremony, she says that the theatre has given her all that she has, mm. but it hasn't contributed to her as a character in the least. Um, and I really like that what that kind of says about the, the whole theatre profession and being an actor is that is all it is is just acting in the world and manipulating people around you and like manoeuvring things around you and making sure that you're in the right place at the right time rather than actually having any talent. Um, I don't know. I mean, I don't think it does say that because we, you know, overall we do know that there is that extra textual meaning with Betty Davis's talent and everyone else's, but I just find that really interesting. And I agree. And, and she, I was thinking about this actually, this very thing when I was rewatching it, how she's sort of like this, or she, she positions herself when we first see her right at the start of the film, sort of at the stage door. She's been to every single performance of this um, play that um, Margot Channing, uh, is starring in and she eventually is is let in you know through the stage door and sort of into that world and no longer she's an observer and then she starts becoming this active participant and she's just sort of giving her life story and you know she's talking about how like she's doesn't have any family and this is like her entire life is watching this before like she's seen this performance hundreds of times it is all that her life is and that and yet it is so illusory and you know that's that's an obvious thing maybe to say about stardom and celebrity but i think i've i really sort of 
caught onto that really made a lot of sense for me this time around watching that idea. Yeah, and when one of them says something like, uh, you know, when the performance is finished, just stand on, stand in the auditorium and, you know, continue to give applause, just something to do until the aisles are cleared. You know, mm, this idea yeah. is that we don't actually value the performance but that maybe it's just habit or a process of being. Yeah, um, yeah, because that stakes are laid right, right at the beginning when in that introductory speech when she's been given the award by, oh, my God, what's his name? Walter Hampton. Oh, yeah. He plays the guy who's giving the uh, the Sarah Siddons Award. She has dreamed to belong to us and tonight that dream comes true. <laughs> it's like it's all it is about. Because it's, oh, I was also really struck by the time frame because they, they, that award is given in October and then they flash back to June and it seems really, really quick, like short space of time for her to have become so famous and so yes, successful. Yeah, but they do mention that. Mm, yeah, and how young she is as a re- recipient. Just, yeah, and how um, all of the others were just falling over themselves to help her. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, which is kind of insane. I mean, I, I really love that the stakes in this film are so high. Um, you know, you have Margot's livelihood and her memory, her public memory and her relationship with her husband at the time, I guess, you know, when the film is set, he's they're married, although they do do that in the process of the film Mm. um but the stakes are so high in all of these different facets of margot's life and also eve's life but the ending is kind of a (laughs) non-ending like betty davis the margot channing character she just gives up and does it of her own accord she's not forced out there's no really huge climax where anything awful happens and so i i feel like this kind of non-ending speaks to something like i don't know this weird scenario of hollywood where people's lives just fizzle out. Their, out. I mean, their careers just peter out. Yeah. Um, yeah. And th- that's, you know, that's fascinating. Yeah, yeah, it's a very different game now. I can't yeah. imagine you just, like, disappearing after you choose to have children. Yeah, but after two hours and 15 minutes for nothing really to happen, I mean, you just get <laughs> this woman coming in and, of course, it suggests that it's a cycle and that Eve's life is going to be destroyed in the same way that Margot's was. Although Margot's wasn't really destroyed. Um, in no, that she seems to leave quite happy. Like way. But, you terms. know, she does know, yeah, on her terms exactly, but she does know what Eve did, I think, and you can tell that she's, oh, yeah. you know, she's livid. But you have this this woman come in and do the same thing essentially to Eve, but you don't really see that happen and you don't see Eve necessarily get angry about it or pissed off. It's like, is she going to fall for this in the same way? I don't know. I just mm. find that, that really fascinating. Betty Davis said famously afterwards, she said something like they asked or they told me that we should have done a sequel but we didn't need to because Gary and I lived it, you know, because they were married <laughs> for 10 years after this film, I think, and then they divorced. And I think that that's, that kind of speaks to the, this constant re- self-reflexivity of Hollywood and of the star system, not just in the films and stars and performances, but like in everything, how aware Betty Davis was of her role in Hollywood and of the effect of Hollywood on her own life and how how she kind of accepted the system but also opposed it but worked within it. Whereas someone like Joan Crawford, of course, thought that she could change it somehow but mm, she couldn't. Um, right. I just love what Betty Davis's sense of humour about all of this. Yeah. I feel like she just let it slide. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you almost couldn't even go higher than she went though, like for her at that time. I mean, to, like to, to be able – she seems to be – giving such a powerful knowing performance. I mean, you want to talk about wanting to unpack it a bit, and I guess we could, because it feels like she gets the humour of every scene she's in, even that horrific scene at the theatre where over, like, one sequence, the, to- the table, she loses almost everything. Mm-hmm. That, that was played so powerfully, I thought, right in the middle of this film that's known mostly for extremely funny witticisms, and it seems to be constantly mined as well, like, by films afterwards. That's um, very true. I, I love uh, the scene that I always return to in this film is the her when she hosts that dinner party sequence and we get a young Marilyn Monroe pops up mm, yeah. uh, with a couple of lines <laughs> as well, which is its own interesting um, aspect of that scene. It's just like this interesting transformation of when she, she realises that there's something, I guess the jealousy that she feels towards Eve, she feels that she really, over the course of this scene uh, or this party sequence she really feels that and that's where you know that classic line where she says fasten your seatbelts it's going to be a bumpy <laughs> night um and it is a bumpy night i don't know i think there's a lot to a lot of humor in that oh, performance yeah. and in that mo in that sort of key turning point moment for her 
Um, I just as yeah. well that just quickly that sequence that dinner party where she has the dinner party at home um, just shows. I mean that this is obviously about Betty Davis, but it's also an ensemble piece, and the script is incredible. But also, the filmmaking itself is just amazing. And that shot on the staircase where they're all just kind of sitting around, and then Marilyn Monroe says, "I want a drink." You know that they're all squeezed in there, and it's so uncomfortable to watch and you can tell that they're all uncomfortable to be there um that every single one of them wishes that they were somewhere else because they can sense how awful the night is going and that that is also translated into the film style it's just really wonderful we see that happening later on when characters are squeezed into spaces and like in the car where you know they're trapped and that's yeah. yeah. of being late for the train and whatnot yeah it's brilliant yeah i really really um like the energy in that scene and the way that it it seems to be this thing that they're all kind of res- resigned to. And I'm always confused as to how Addison DeWitt can maintain enough gossip, gossip to fuel a daily column and keep friends. Because even like later on, they all, they're all they all aware of what a you know, nasty, exploitative guy that he's... I don't think they're friends though. I mean, he's a press agent. Yeah. Um, well, that's, see, this Press is... agents are just like Weasley and they weasel their way into company. And this is a really... And also he's powerful, I suppose, so they need him. Yeah, mm. and this is a really interesting thing, I, I think, and it's a broader point, is in these circumstances, who's friends with who and who's just a professional acquaintance yeah. or, you know, someone to be playing five chess moves ahead of in order to get ahead of the game. Like, I, particularly in, in show business, I think that's a question that is, I mean, it's it's... It's sort of irreconcilable on some levels, um, you know, because all of these people, they network together, they work together, they party together. Where are those lines? Where are those lines? I mean, that's just, it's no wonder it messes people up, really. Mm, yeah. <laughs> there was a line that I've written down and I'm annoyed I didn't write down who said it. Maybe Margot Channing? Anyway, one career all females have in common, whether they like it or not, being a woman. Yeah, Margot says that. Yeah. Okay, yeah. You know, it's incredible because she's kind of, I guess, acknowledging that even though she really dislikes maybe what Evie's doing and that, that, that explains her her mood at the end and why this seems an ending without a climax is that she's just like, well, we all have to be coyotes some, mm. sometime yeah. in our yeah, lives. yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't know. And, you know, for, for a film to say that at this time was incredible. I mean, so many films were really, really aware of struggles of, of gender expectations and of the society that was created, but they couldn't be really outright about it. But there were occasional jabs like this. Mm. And that stuff is all really, really interesting, especially from, you know, today's perspective. Yeah. yeah. And uh, I, I just, on a similar theme, I wrote down, I mean, yes, we literally just wrote down dollars. <laughs> uh, when Margot says, Bill's 32, he looks 32. He looked at five years ago. He'll look at 20 years from now. I hate men. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah I mean, it's so true as well. Yeah, it is true. Mm. It is true. <laughs> yeah. So. And it was true back then and it's true now. I mean. Incredible. It's such a, it's such a wonderful movie. I think it's amazing, actually. Yeah. Yeah. I would definitely take the opportunity to see it on the big screen. Absolutely. Listeners. Yes. Yeah. Wonderful. So that's mm. playing the Young Heart Festival? Yes. It certainly is. Also, before we finish, they go to 21. I know. I know. This bar in New York that they go to I'm the obsessed s- with. <laughs> do they? I can't remember that, but they do go to the Stork Club. Yeah, they do. Yeah, as well. Um, okay. not, yeah, there's a scene where they find out that Addison DeWitt's published this nasty article. Uh, or, oh, yeah, of course they do. I remember. Yes, I remember the shot. It's like this a high angle shot from above and then they walk into a, a mm. set. Every every woman and man worth their salt in the 1950s in Hollywood went to 21, didn't they? And yes, they did. <laughs> Uh, g- cool. Um, and also, how amazingly large was the ladies' room in? Yes, the impressive. Bar yeah, oh, it's so it like somebody's house. Like, oh, that was incredible. Yeah, it was like <laughs> its own separate chambers. Mm. Or what? And we haven't even said Thelma Ritter is amazing. Thelma Ritter is amazing. Thelma Ritter is amazing. Oscar nominated for this, even mm. though she seems to be in not very many scenes compared to other people. But she makes her, her presence felt. Absolutely. Uh, so that's one of the highlights from the Young at Heart Festival. Um, others include Paul Damien Williams' documentary Gurumal, Dominic Cook's adaptation of Ian McEwan's On Chessel Beach, which stars Sasha Ronan, Billy Howell and Emily Watson. And that festival runs from April 2 to 25. Um, other older films they're showing also include A Star is Born and The Prime of Miss Jean Brodie. 
Which brings us to this. The, sorry, the George Cukor star is born. Oh, sorry, thank you. Starring Judy Garland, because there are three Mo- versions yes, and Mo- possibly a fourth coming up with Lady Gaga. Yes, that's true. We await <laughs> wow. with bated breath. <laughs> anyway. No, that's a very good point. Thank you, Ella. <laughs> Um, which brings us to this episode's film diary. One of Cultural Capital's favourite films of 2017 is playing at the Astor this week. Lady Bird gets a double bill with Wes Anderson's Moonrise Kingdom on March 31st. On April 5th, you can see Tom Cruise in a fast plane and then Tom Cruise in a fast car at the Astor's double bill of Top Gun and Days of Thunder. On April 7th, it's a cracking pair of modern Aboriginal Australian-focused films with Warwick Thornton's Sweet Country and Ivan Sen's Goldstone. Over at Acme, it's a riot of Japanese colour and character with yet another season of Hayao Miyazaki that runs from March 30 until April 29. Also screening is Shady Straw's Israeli comedy Holy Air that runs until April 3rd. But gathering more publicity than both of those offers put together is a 55-minute film made by the Soda Joke Collective called Terra Nullius. Eloise, you've had a chance to see this, haven't you? Yes, I saw Terra Nullius last week and it is a riot. It's so much fun. Um, it's As they have said, I did interview Soda Jerk for um, another uh, podcast. <laughs> Sorry, Andrew. <laughs> <laughs> um, where, where can people hear this? Senses yes, of Cinema podcast? The Senses of Cinema podcast. Yes, that's correct. Um, and they were wonderful. And they basically, um, I, I mean, I love Soda Jerk's work and you mm. can see some of it on the internet, but they do display in galleries around the world. Um, and this is kind of a narrative. There's a little um, tagline at the beginning that says, this is a drama, not a documentary, because they're not suggesting that anything that they are saying is, you know, truth. Um, which, of course, is something that a lot of films do politically. They present certain stories or certain histories as, as um, you know, the utmost thing. So I guess this is kind of like an historiography of Australian history and cinema. Um, and they use a bunch of clips and characters and kind of repurpose them, sample things and sounds, speeches from prime ministers and some songs and make this narrative, they call it a political revenge fable in three acts. Anyway, but it's so great and it's playing on the hour every hour at the Australian Centre for, for the Moving Image. Um, yeah, nice work, Until Acme. July, yeah. It's free, isn't it? It's free. free. Yeah. yeah. Yes, because there was controversy about this film after the Ian Potter Foundation um, revoked their support for the film. It was co-commissioned by Acme and the Ian Potter Foundation. So right. um, there has been quite a bit of controversy over this film and Soda Jerk claimed that the foundation called it un-Australian. Mm. Um, but Acme is still screening it and I'm dying to check it out. Yeah, yeah, it's great. And as many people should check it out as, as they can and many times. Yeah, cool. Mm, okay. So is the reason for its controversy obvious? Uh, yes, although to be very honest with you, it's not as... It's not as bad as you might think it is with with this comment that was made about it um, or with the action by the Ian Potter Foundation. Um, but I guess that depends on who you are and where your um, political al- alignment lies. Um, you know, some people might think that it is as bad as all that. But, right. Um, anyway. Great. Well, go Melbourne. There's a bit of Melbourne culture that we should be extremely yeah. proud of by the sounds of it. Yeah. Um, also, this fortnight sees the opening of a whole bunch of films that we haven't had the chance to all see, including A Wrinkle in Time and Death of Stalin, but two that I have seen are Blockers and Ready Player One. Julie left her laptop open. Because we're snooping on our kids? No. We don't understand what they're saying, so it's not snooping. Oh my god, I love puzzles. <laughs> Some about an eggplant. And teenage emoji eggplants are dicks. Wait, what? All emojis have a secret meaning, so like trees are weed, and this thing is Yas Queen. Yas Queen! <laughs> So she's going to get Rose's yeah. kiss and then touch his dick eggplant. Look at all that drool coming out of the smiley face. That's jizz. Stand down. It is. Look, it's coffee. But... <laughs> this is a sex pact. They're planning on losing their virginity on prom night. Maybe it's not sex. They're just saying, hey, you're okay with me. You're okay with me. Baby. No, I fucking knew it. Our girls are not thinking things through. I'm going to stop them. I'm in. Let's cock block those motherfuckers. So that was the trailer for Blockers. Ignore it. It's awful, and if you've seen the poster or trailer for Blockers, you've likely drawn the conclusion that it's a frat boy targeted gross-out comedy about crazy overbearing parents trying to stop their teenage daughters from the shame of losing their virginity on prom night. And while the girls' sex pact is the premise, it's also an excuse for the writer and director Kay Cannon, best known for the first Pitch Perfect film, 
to make one of the most sex-positive, open-minded, queer-friendly, culturally diverse and frankly funny big-budget films 2018 has yet offered. Teenage Julie, played by Catherine Newton, decides she wants to lose her virginity to her boyfriend on prom night, and her friend Kyla, played by Geraldine Viswanathan, decides virginity isn't that big a deal and that she'll lose hers too. Sam, played by Gideon Adlon, agrees with the idea of the sex pact, though joins with less enthusiasm. Leslie Mann, Ike Marinholtz and John Cena are the three parents who are the source of much of the film's surprising amount of humour. I'm not suggesting we're at Mean Girls or clueless levels of excellence, but this is much funnier, more heartfelt and sweeter than it seems. But much like Bridesmaids had a scene involving explosive diarrhoea in a wedding dress that was out of tone with the rest of the film, but was presumably shoehorned in to get some dudes chuckling, Blockers has an equivalent scene involving anally imbibing beer that the film just didn't need. But we are in a world of the global blockbuster comedy, and I'm guessing that's a gag that doesn't require much translation and works as a kind of trade-off for some of its more progressive takes on sex. Recommended. My name's Wade Watts. My dad picked that name because it sounded like a superhero's alter ego like Peter Parker or Bruce Banner. But he died when I was a kid, my mom too. And I ended up here. Sitting here in my tiny corner of nowhere. There's nowhere left to go. Nowhere. Except the Oasis. Oasis is the world in which around half of Steven Spielberg's new film Ready Player One takes place, and its rendering is both its strongest and weakest element. Ready Player One is set in the year 2045, in which families have been torn apart and people liberated by the introduction of Oasis, a virtual reality world which consumes the money and energy of humanity. The creators of Oasis are James Halliday, played by Mark Rylance, and Ogden Morrow, played by Simon Pegg. But it's Halliday who has created secret dimensions in Oasis and who has promised to give his fortune and total control over Oasis to the winner of a three-stage contest. Our guide through this story is Ty Sheridan's Wade Watts, who goes by Parsifal in the Oasis, and who soon meets legendary Artemis, played by Olivia Cooke, and his best friend Irock, played by TJ Miller. Also trying to complete Halliday's quest to control the Oasis is ICI Corporation, run by a ruthless, I don't know if he knows how to do anything else, Ben Mendelssohn, who is harnessing hundreds of workers to comb Oasis for clues and solve the problems and riddles using their knowledge of Halliday's life and his obsession with 1980s pop culture. And it's this last bit that will probably decide how much you really like this film. The CGI is inarguably remarkable. Scenes involving a car race early on and a scene at a virtual reality nightclub are the new benchmark for this technology. Spielberg produced, released and promoted The Post in the time that it took to work on the special effects for Ready Player One, but it's his need to cram every location with 80s ephemera that is going to be the difference between liking and loving this. Personally, I dug the occasional Dungeons & Dragons reference, and a lot of people will probably love a sequence involving a Stanley Kubrick film, and there'll probably be grown men weeping when they see some of the Atari 2600 games being played by the characters. But in 2018, this feels like it's come about five years too late to really make its mark. Despite the fairly diverse cast, this feels like a film made by a white man who had a good time in the 1980s, making a film for other white men who had a good time in the 1980s. And Spielberg was responsible for a lot of good times in the 1980s, so it's weird to see him nod to himself in Ready Player One. I've not read Ernest Cline's book, but I gather it sticks pretty close to the source material. Spielberg's special effects here are not of the disconcertingly shit Polar Express variety, but I personally couldn't get on board with the avatars that the main characters spend much of their time being. John Williams contributes a bombastic score that links action and emotion, but in any film in which Ben Mendelsohn plays an evil man beset by personal weaknesses, is automatically going to be the best thing in that film, and it's no different here. But I, I, I want to express Don't the... speak. Don't. Just a few things that I want to tell don't you. When speak. we first met, no, our no, first no. Don't speak. Please don't speak. Please don't speak. No, 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 go. Go, gentle Scorpio, go! Your Pisces wishes you every happy return. Just one. Don't speak! And now to our top three films about ageing stars of the stage and screen. There's a pretty wide net for um, the potential films that we can consider here. Isn't there, Elo? (laughs) (laughs) There sure is. I um, am really excited about this topic, although Andy said that he kind of was thinking um, far and wide about what to include. Yes, yeah. Um, But I love this and maybe, you know, you can go to certain things and think that extra textually they're about ageing film stars, maybe more so than in terms of the actual narrative. But Mm. um, Mm. anyway, you know, it's a lot of fun to think about. Um, Anyway. Yeah. I mean, I just think of Grey Gardens. Grey Gardens. But they weren't really the size of the station screen, but they may as well have been. 
Well, I mean, little Edie afterwards. wanted to be, and <laughs> she wasn't. But then she was aging already, without being one. And I now think. she so, is you know, a star. Yeah, so she became a star. Really, it's kind of the yeah. reverse. I guess. Yeah, I mean that that kind of thing is really fascinating. That mm. you know that just really which exposes um, the power of film stars, you know, with audiences. So yeah, great. Anders, would you like to kick us off with your number three? I'm going to kick us off with our, my number three, which is the prototypical film about an ageing star, in my opinion, and it's Sunset Boulevard. Woo. As we record this, by the way, it's Gloria Swanson's birthday. Happy birthday, Gloria. She Happy was born birthday. March 27th, 1899. Um, so oh, my God, don't say that out loud. <laughs> 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 uh, she'll, she'll own it. She'll own yeah. it. She'll own it. Yeah, yeah, yeah definitely. So this... Film came out only a year after All About Eve, I think, 1951. And it's just as perceptive about the dark heart of entertainment. And here, the setting has shifted from the East Coast to the West Coast and Hollywood. Yeah, it is sort of remarkable that both of these films were released over half a century ago. Because, again, I don't want to sound like a broken record, but it is very relevant. Anyway, there are so many great ideas in this movie, not the least of which is the central conceit playing around with narration the way that All About Eve does. We see a dead body in a pool at the start of the film and then the guy who belongs to that body narrates the movie, telling us how this came to pass. Gloria Swanson is, I think, wonderful as Norma Desmond, an ageing silent film star who's holed up virtually alone in this mansion. She falls for the central character, Joe, who is a sort of hard-on-his-luck screenwriter who stumbles into her life one day. And she's led to believe that she's going to star in a comeback vehicle. She's sort of spent the last few years in obscurity. There's a lot of pathos in the film and particularly, I I mean, I'm like, do I want to spoil that the movie came out six years ago? (laughs) Um, But uh, yeah, the ending is remarkable. Um, It's iconic for a reason. And I think that line that she has when she says, I'm ready for my close-up, Mr. DeMille, that just sums up perfectly not only her character but the film's entire thesis about what Hollywood can do to people um, and fame and success. Yeah, that sort of empty delusion that may or may not ultimately destroy you that we sort of touched on or that we mm. talked about in All About Eve too. that sort of, I don't the way it changes you as a person is yeah, really interesting. Yeah, it's that lust for fame that is real, the real star, I think, of All About Eve. I think that explains the ending, the way that it's kind of like flame that's passed from woman to woman, at least. Yeah, definitely. So, um, yes, I, I really recommend watching Sunset Boulevard if you haven't because it's a wonderful, wonderful film. Yes, and definitely. makes a good double with All About Eve, actually. Yeah, good call. Yeah. I totally agree. Hello, do you have a number three? Uh, yeah, my number three... Um, is a film that needs very little introduction, so I'll just mention it quickly. Um, Robert Aldrich's Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. Oh, yeah, good call. From 1962. So <laughs> um, I was kind of throwing around some ideas and put this on there because it's not really about ageing stars, but it's about stars who have aged and are struggling very, very severely with that scenario that's being forced on them so we have baby jane played by betty davis who was a child star and then has become um psychologically uh, attached to her childhood persona and is like really i mean this is kind of like the ground zero grand wignol film where you have her kind of playing this really really twisted um baby doll type character and Mm. living in a gothic mansion with her sister played by Joan Crawford who is in a wheelchair and has been in a wheelchair for I don't know how long maybe 20 years let's just say that anyway that obviously has this whole history and really interesting story with the fact that Joan Crawford and Betty Davis didn't get along but they recognized each other's star power and also talent Mm. absolutely and so kind of agreed to do this film together because they knew it would be a hit and they, um, you know, in fact it was and it started, it gave them a whole lot more material to kind of work with in the future. And also there's a scene where, similar to Gloria Swanson in Sunset Boulevard, there's a scene where Joan Crawford is watching her old movies on television. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. And that's actually, <laughs> I forget which, maybe 
The Unknown, like one of her silent films um, mm. on television at home, but actually Joan Crawford's mm. um, work. So memories of the glory days, I suppose. Yeah. 60 years before Soda Jerk, they were remixing films. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. That's awesome. um, the, it's classic. Mm. As much as Sunset Boulevard is, so yeah. is whatever happened to Baby Jane. For sure. Well, I think I like actually the way that this is tying in with a film that's showing in cinemas at the moment, Film Starts Out Down in Liverpool as well, which yes. I did consider. But my number three is uh, Bullets Over Broadway, which is a comedy thriller from 1995, which uh, saw Diane Weist win a Best Supporting Actress Oscar for her grand dame of the Broadway, um, Helen Sinclair. And it also manages to get some really great performances from John Cusack and Kaz Palamenteri and Jennifer Tilly, who I think were all really, really great in that. Um, so this film is a, a set in 1928 when Prohibition is in full effect and... There's this young and overconfident playwright, David Shane, played by John Cusack, who's about to launch his first show on Broadway. And then in order to finance it, he has to hire Olive Neal, who's this demanding girlfriend of a gangster, Cheech. And Cheech turns out to be this theatrical genius who rewrites and improves Shane's script. Um, but then it's basically Diane Weist's, like every, she controls every single scene she's in whenever she's, she's just this extremely demanding woman and knows how great she is as well. There's also another um, ageing actor in the form of uh, overeating matinee idol played by Jim Broadbent. Um, who's, who has um, a lot of the great lines. Um, and Tr- Tracy Ullman is also an ageing ingenue as well who kind of has some really good scenes. There's some really great camera work from Carla De Palma. Jeffrey, Jeffrey Curlin's um, Deco-era costumes are amazing and there's some really great dialogue and songs that are really well edited by Susan E. Morse. Yeah, cool. Uh, my number two is not the cultural capital favourite, Night of the Hunter. But <laughs> I just wanted Why? to very briefly mention it because Lillian Gish is stars in that um, as this wonderful grandmother figure and she was an absolute giant of silent mm. cinema. So, so she true. was an ageing star when she was in that film. Very but, good point. Uh, no, my number two is Maps to the Stars. Oh, right. Nice which one. Which links into your number two and your number three in terms of John Cusack. Um, mm, so maybe. I'm not a huge David Cronenberg completist and he's one of my cinematic blind spots, um, but I have seen and loved both back-to-back films, Cosmopolis and Maps to the Stars. The rotten heart of Hollywood, it's something of a running theme in these films we're discussing, but it's rare to see such subject matter tackled in this particular way there's sort of this detached irony or almost there's something very cold about the way Cronenberg's captures this film and also the performances um the most interesting of which I think is Julianne Moore as the aging movie star Havana Sagrand um, great name. Um, <laughs> she's sort of one breakdown away from becoming a Norman De- Norma Desmond type character. She's complete. What makes it interesting? She's completely overshadowed by her mother, who's this, um, who was this famous um, actor, and she's desperately trying to score the lead in a remake of the movie which made her mother famous. It's in terms of age and mm. stardom. There's all of that going yeah, on Yeah, and there. cycles of fame. The cycles of fame, exactly. I mean, more. she's really good at that sort of slightly unhinged, that idea, is there an emptiness behind who these people are? Like that, she's very good at portraying that, I think. Mm, yeah. um, and she's great in this film. Also, John Cusack gives a really interesting performance as this creepy TV psychologist and Mia Wasikowska, who's mm. always worth watching. Yeah, um, is in this and Robert Pattinson as a limo driver. Is he playing his character from Cosmopolis? I think so. Yeah, interesting. Anyway, it's a great film and I recommend it. Yeah, that's my number two. Here's Joan Crawford, more dazzling than ever in the kind of role that has won her worldwide acclaim. A charming temptress whose temper and temperament match her fiery hair. Never have you seen her more dynamic, more feminine than as the fabulous stage star called Jenny Stewart. And with her is Michael Wilding, the musician who knew her for what she really was, a woman. What else did Charlie tell you about me? He said that you had a sensational figure, but that you threw it about like a burlesque queen. He said you had beautiful legs, but that they always walked in the wrong direction. And? He said that your mouth belonged to an angel. The words that came out of it were pure tramp. The next time you see Charlie Mailer, tell him to take those 88 keys, black and white, one by one, and... Um, My number two is starring 
Joan Crawford again. Um, (laughs) So, uh, you know, I do have a long list that I will mention later, but I just couldn't include anything else on it except for this film, which I suppose is not really about an aging star, but about an established Broadway musical star played by Joan Crawford. And she's not aging. And I don't think that you could, this film, sorry, the film that I'm talking about is called Torch Song, directed by Charles Walters at MGM in 1953. And I don't think that you could put Joan Crawford in anything and say that she was aging at that time. And, you know, she wasn't, but it's about kind of um, this Broadway star who is really, really strict and isolated and is basically painted as a you know a difficult woman she has this great talent and stardom and is very very famous and constantly swarmed by fans outside the theater so she's not aging but she is does kind of have that affectation well anyone who's over 35 i think at that time was (laughs) i mean all about eve she turns 40 and that's the end of everything so it's a different concept of aging i think back then. that's true although betty davis was 50 at the time and you did still have women in their mid-40s playing romantic leads yeah, during yeah. Hollywood at that time. And so it's all really interesting, you know, kind of flipped given what we're looking at now and facing in terms of roles in Hollywood. Um, but, Meryl. you know, Meryl doesn't count. <laughs> but I adore this film. It's so bonkers. It's completely bonkers. Joan Crawford was more of a musical dance star in her early career, like in the early 30s. And then became, you know, like the face of melodrama, I suppose. Um, and then has returned to it in Torch Song. It's so strange. Basically, she, yeah, she's playing this um, woman with a lead role in a show, rehearsing, and she picks all of these fights. Oh, it's Technicolor, by the way. And you don't get a whole lot of Joan Crawford in Technicolor. I mean, obviously, Johnny Guitar comes to mind. But um, she, she doesn't like her pianist because he um, is drunk all the time. And then she gets a new pianist and he's blind and... The, I guess the suggestion is that she is difficult to love and she's old and she doesn't like the way she looks anymore and she's lonely. But he, of course, because he's blind, just sees her true good heart beneath her wrinkles. Um, sorry, Joan Crawford. Um, uh, it's kind of really, really strange and it opens with her singing in the rehearsal room in this like terrific black leotard with kind of a half turtleneck and this cape so that her legs show off and they're like terrific legs amazing so you know she's still got it definitely but the the way that the film presents her as a character kind of suggests that she's negotiating what to do when your career has kind of reached this impasse and you are struggling with new material um, and how to keep yourself fresh and around but she sings this song that I feel like I have to mention called two-faced woman and inexplicably she's wearing blackface there is no Mm. relevance in the song or the act or the film at all for this to occur but she just is and it's this um kind of weird semi jazz number and she's just dancing around a cafe I don't know. It's really bizarre, but I just needed to mention it. Yeah, wow. You know, I'm not always against blackface and I know that it has a, a place, at least historically, but in this film, it, it, I can't figure it out. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's bizarre, especially with her strawberry blonde hair. It just looks really, really wacky. Um, yeah, right. It does really unusual. But yeah, it's wonderful. I love it. So there Cool. You and that's Torch Song? Great. Okay. Well, you mentioned the early 30s as being a time for Joan Crawford when she was doing singing and dancing. And my number two is from 1933, which is Lloyd Bacon's film 42nd Street. And this is kind of like the founding film about backstage musicals where a lot of the cliches were set and you have some of the actors who are still trying to stay in the limelight and these like uh, B.B. Daniels, Dorothy Brock and Warren Baxter's uh, Julian Marsh as two of the main actors. And then you've got the new generation coming through in the form of Ruby Keeler's Peggy Sawyer. So essentially this is all about putting the show on together. And this is, uh, and like All About Eve, you've got actors who are, theatre actors who are living in luxury with the class difference really accentuated quite early on. And also like All About Eve, you barely get any actual stage time toward, until right toward the end where Busby Berkeley goes completely bananas with taking you well out, well out of the stage and into the form of the imagination. But it's also, it's all about the show and it's basically, it's really interesting seeing the sacrifices that are necessary to be able to be made to put on some sort of transient piece of theatre. Because back then, you know, there was not the recording and so it's this really kind of temporal moment. It's all about this, the energy and the sweat that goes into that. Um, so it's very much grounded in, in reality in the form of the auditions and then a lot of really, really hard work. 
Um, but it's also like this back, the way that the backstage musical kind of takes the characters of the stage um, and it's almost like the most realistic form because it really clearly presents the musical numbers as these sort of events staged for an audience. And so you have the audience in quite a lot of the shots, but then towards the end, which is the best known parts of the, of the film, when the camera is, you know, soars up into the eaves and then you get all these sets that are much too big to be realistic. So it's actually almost like it's been for the film viewing audience all along, even though it's meant to be set up. It's, it's all about who, the people who come to the theatre. Um, and so I thought that was a really interesting film. I watched that for the first time this week and it really blew me away, particularly those latter scenes. Amazing. Candy Casey, very good. You're going to do it again, Victoria. Stop smiling. It's not the high school play. Count. Oh, five, six, seven, eight. One. All that work. Stand on your right foot. Point your left toe. Drop that shoulder. All that pain. Oh, that's not too hard, is it? Oh, boy, do I hate show business. All that Come glitter. Come jokes is what I need. No, you love show business. That's right, I love show business. All that love. I'll go either way. It's showtime, folks. All that jazz. Well, on the theme of huge amounts of effort going into something that may or may not be transient, my number one is Bob Fosse's 1979 musical All That Jazz, which, again, I watched for the first time only a few weeks ago. Uh, thank you, Netflix. Um, <laughs> it's a... Other streaming Roy providers are also available. So Roy Scheider stars as this sort of stand-in for Bob Fosse. He's a director. This is, so he's an ageing um, director, choreographer, not so much a star. But basically he plays his character, Mr Gideon, who's essentially Bob Fosse himself. And it's very autobiographical. Um, and he's directing a, a musical production in a, in a downtown New York theatre, and then he's also editing a editing together a film that's based on the stand-up of some guy. I think Fosse was cutting together a stand-up special for Lenny Bruce whilst directing oh, yeah. a show, and he had like huge health problems. Anyway, he's mm. and he would he went on to sort of die. Of, I think people say he predicted his own death with this film, which I'm not. Quite sure if that's accurate. Also, spoiler alert. Anyway, so the film <laughs> is um, uh, follows him in a weird sort of pseudo. It's kind of documentary, mockumentary style of filmmaking. But then you have these musical numbers in the middle of it, which are really you know Bob Fosse was a master choreographer, and they're wonderful to watch, particularly the musical numbers from the show that he's directing in the show. But then there's lots of other stuff and. Basically, he, he winds up being exhausted and spends half of the film in a hospital bed. And it just, it gets very, very dark. And it does, it, it sort of gets into his interior. Well, the whole film is really about his interior. But particularly in the second half of the film when he's sort of virtually immobile. All these song and dance sequences become ever more expressive of his interior life right through to the final sequence, which is quite something i've watched it now like probably 10 times like just that scene since i've watched it three weeks yeah, ago like wow. i was just so obsessed with it it's really it's yeah really interesting very it's, it's a man confronting his mortality in a dance sequence and then there's a final cut and the like juxtaposition between that dance number and what happens next is just i mean it floored me it's just stunning it's mm. actually one of the most stunning endings i've ever seen in a film at all so i I really recommend it. It's such an unusual film to combine this mockumentary style with like Jessica Langer playing this sort of angel type figure that he's talking to. So you've got elements of fantasy in there as well as the musical numbers. It's really, really quite something. Mm, brilliant. And it does, it does make you question how worthwhile, you know, is putting on a show, you know, the show must go on. Uh, is that morally justifiable? Don't know. He doesn't ask that question. He just right. poses it. Yeah, okay. But through, yeah, it doesn't th answer that Through question. the medium of modern dance. Through the medium of his amazing choreography. No, through the medium of uh, a final edit, a one edit. Can you believe it, Andy Hazel? One single edit poses a question of such <laughs> profound importance. Isn't that amazing? That's the power of cinema right there. Watch it. It's on Netflix. Thank you. I just, as an aside, before I get to my number one, want to mention the song Cabaret from Bob Fosse's musical Cabaret. It's not a film about an ageing star by any means, but the song 
I did think to it when I was kind of thinking through some ideas about what to list and that song cabaret where Liza Minnelli sings about her friend Elsie um, with whom I shared four sorted rooms in Chelsea. Anyway, that she has that line, um, you know, uh, from cradle to tomb, life from cradle to tomb, it isn't that long a stay. And that Liza Minnelli is singing it and just like absolutely loving it and bursting with excitement. I fucking love her in that movie. I cannot get enough of watching her do her thing all the time. Yeah. But I feel like, I mean, it's a line that's about dying before you get old, obviously, but just that life is kind of like a stage and like a theatre that um, doesn't last very long at all um, because obviously Elsie um, is a prostitute and takes drugs and ODs um, in the song. And I just really love it, you know, that we think about Bob Fosse and what he's doing and how he's, he was like an incredibly talented man but didn't get nearly enough recognition in the film world at, at least. Not at all. Mm. At all. And so, I, I mean... he's a genius. Like he's oh, he's such a genius. And I feel like forever sad um, that The Godfather, that Cabaret came out the same year as The Godfather because it absolutely should have won Best Picture. But, you know, anyway, it, yeah. has, it does have its recognition anyway. But I did want to bring that up after you mentioned all that jazz. Yeah, cool. Thank you. Um, anyway, my number one is a film starring Shirley MacLaine. I know you guys were hanging out. I did tell them last yeah. night that I would have two Shirley MacLaine films in my top three. I have another one up my sleeve. Don't worry. Okay, anyway, this film is Postcards from the Edge, directed by Mike Nichols in 1990. Yeah, right. This is a semi-autobiographical film kind of written by Carrie Fisher. Starring Meryl Streep as an actress returned to Hollywood after threatening her life and career with drug addiction, where she butts up against her diva ex-film star mother, played by Shirley MacLaine. As Carrie Fisher and Debbie Reynolds, I believe, made quite clear publicly, it was not about her and Debbie Reynolds. It was not about their relationship specifically. Um, And I think that maybe Debbie Reynolds wanted to play the role of the mother, but Carrie Fisher sort of said no like it's not us because Debbie Reynolds and Carrie Fisher had a tense relationship for a while but then they became a lot closer um, and their relationship warmed and the mother-daughter relationship in this film is very very tense and a lot of that is to do with the mother being a diva which is a comment on Hollywood in a lot of ways so at one point Meryl claims that she's middle-aged I think Shirley's telling her off for being out late and, you know, were you boning some people? And she's like, I'm (laughs) middle-aged, like, (laughs) leave me alone. And Shirley says, no, I'm middle-aged, to which Meryl replies that no one lives to the age of 120 (laughs) these days. (laughs) So it's kind of, you know, it's just that comment is, is, comes out of that relationship and comes out of the the tension between them. But as a film, it's a snappy commentary on what Hollywood does with its discarded stars um, which is discard them, I suppose, and um, just not care that as that its machine needs to build up, you know, this false sense of kind of self and importance and security that it then just doesn't care about any any more afterwards. Shirley MacLaine's character says she's talking about her own life um, in film. She says. Of course, in those days, the material was a lot better, referring to, like, scripts and stuff. <laughs> so, you know, it, it, it is very much about this bitterness that, that she's no longer successful in some ways, even though Meryl is the main character. It's very much about the two of them. Hello, dear. Oh. Hi, Mama. No, you see, she's exactly like me when I was her age. What I'm doing, I, I feel like I belong after film. I, I never necessary. stopped working. I know how to do that. It was very, very good therapy for me after my divorce and my miscarriages. Times and bum times, I've seen them all in my fear. Ever since I was about seven, I wanted to be you. Bart does you in his drag show. I am still here. How would you like to have Joan Crawford for a mother? Oh, or Lana please. Turner? These are the options. I mean, I adore this because the script is incredible. It's Carrie Fisher's script and the the dialogue performances are amazing. But Nichols' direction is also really kind of quite wonderful and nuanced and his attention to the difficulties within their relationship is, is really wonderful. The kind of key to, not the two key moments, you know, because there's so many, but... Um, just in a direct contrast, Shirley MacLaine's character at one point sings a song called I'm Still Here and Meryl Streep's character sings a song called I'm Checking Out and given that there are age differences, I just really love what that says about Hollywood and age that, mm, you know, one yeah. of them is kind of claiming their space on this earth and the other one is in this ironic 
way, just kind of saying like, oh, who cares? But I do just want to, I feel like this was what we were doing with All About Eve, but I want to read some lines from the song I'm Still Here that Shirley MacLaine sings because it's phenomenal. Have you guys seen it? Uh, not for a long time. Yeah, yeah. it's yeah. just, it's stunning. But she kind of makes this reference and I find this quite funny given what's happened in Hollywood news in the last couple of months. But she makes a dry reference to auditioning on Xanax's lap <laughs> and then she kind of rolls her, eyes at, rolls her eyes at the audience and they laugh and murmur. And anyway, it's really quite funny. But she says, you know, talking about how they kind of wanted to get rid of her but she's still around obviously. First you're another true blue tramp, then someone's mother, then your camp. I just think that's so funny, you know, especially we're talking about campness yeah. with Betty Davis in that yeah, film. Yeah. But, you know, that, that's, they're, they're the three stages that you can go through and we still see that happening. You know, I just kind of keep thinking about Sally Field and, and her playing, you know, next to Tom Hanks in a number of films. The dialogue in, and the songwriting, it's just, it's all incredible. I adore it. Cool. Good choice. Postcards on the Edge. Yep. Nice one. Um, my number one is kind of like another film in which we look at the metatextuality of the casting because in all of these cases you pretty much can align the life story of the actor playing the ageing actor in the film and go, hmm, there's a lot, of, a lot to get through there. And my number one is um, a very similar one. In this case it's about Fred Astaire and the film is The Bandwagon in which Fred Astaire is playing Tony Hunter who's this ageing guy who's um, seems to have – he's a song and dance man, in fact, from the early days and so this – film being from 1953 uh kind of looks at fred astaire coming off a bunch of flop films and films didn't, that didn't do that well and he's kind of trying to find his place again so he returns back to new york on the train where he meets a couple of his friends who have written a play for him to star in and so it's, it's also um, not only is it is kind of he kind of looking at his own life because the very first song he sings is called by myself where he's kind of walking along through this the train station just kind of pondering life alone and being you know, after fame, because the very, very first scene in this is an auction in which they're trying to auction off his top hat from the film Top Hat and Kane and nobody, not even a quarter, he can't get a quarter for it at this auction. So it's this kind of a lot of like self-referential stuff. But also um, the director Vincent Minnelli has kind of put himself in the film as well in the form of Jack Buchanan's Jeffrey Cordova, who's this extremely pretentious and self-serious uh, theatre director, possibly also based on Orson Welles, I'm not really sure. Um but basically it's, it looks at Sid, Sid Charisse is brought in to kind of, who's this ballet dancer who also, um, you know, has amazing legs like Joan Crawford and uses them a lot um, to dance around the stage and he's also reminding Fred Astaire's character of how old he is and how out of place he is. And there is a lot of tension at the very beginning of this. Is they just don't get along but they're kind of forced together by the director and by the producers who are going to throw money into this if they have these big names. And so this tension is kind of dissipated and it's the phenomenal scene that I still can't kind of get over that it's to Dancing in the Dark this piece and it kind of happens as they're moving through this extremely fake Central Park where they move from this horse and carriage through these younger people who are dancing in the tavern on the green and then they move into this in, and there's only like three or four edits in the whole thing but it's absolutely jaw-dropping it's kind of like the part that you were talking about with Bob Fosse facing mortality in it Mm. even though it's not necessarily about the edits. In this case, it's purely down to the movement. And the camera is so fluid and they managed to, like, just say so much without saying anything at all. It just blew me away. I still kind of can't get over it. But also it's just like kind of uh, in another way, it's kind of similar to 42nd Street. It's like how they're putting the show together. And so there's so many, so much artistic and production value in this film. It kind of blows me away. But also it's also delivered at such a manic level and there's that song Triplets, which I know people have tended to have a fairly polarising reaction to. Um, <laughs> it's bizarre. It is extremely bizarre. There's a lot of gurning. There's a lot of like people with four smiles moving toward you like in this film. It's also like there's barely any shots outside. It's an extremely hermetic film. There's, it is. There's not any sunshine in the film at all, barely. And really I, th I think that all creates this kind of wild effect mm. because it's really the the it's almost overwhelming the yeah it I is know, I the energy of it I, there's something really in, odd about the bandwagon that i but really i love it mm. really interesting. yeah it's kind of reminded me a fair bit of singing in the rain i guess but that's also i think that's why this, that's the dancing in the dark scene is so unusual because it has nothing tonally to do with the rest of the film in a there's way something really really powerful about artificiality yeah. in mm. films overall but in musicals particularly that's just you know insane and so uncanny but so powerful mm. um, and you know this film wouldn't work if it was an exercise in realism um yeah, you know, yeah. Not, not a lot of musicals oh. do and you have i mean at least you know robert wise when he made west side story was like i i love realism how am i gonna make people believe that a bunch of gang 
teenagers are going to burst into song. But it works so well in mm. the bandwagon. Yeah, I mean, particularly when they get the, they go really crazy with the production values when they're doing the girl hunt, that's kind of noir show, like mini show within a show mm-hmm. on stage. And then you end up just getting almost barely any background at all as they're kind of running <laughs> through these completely implausible locations. I also thought it was uh, really interesting that Astaire was like 54 at the time, Jack Buchanan died a few years after the film was made. And Sid Charisse is kind of pretty incredible, I thought, as well. And also the fact that this, the, the theatre production they're actually trying to make makes zero sense at all because <laughs> it's all just a bunch of songs by Arthur Schwartz and Howard Dietz that are kind of linked together. In its, well, they're not even really linked together. They're just kind of – you're going to Louisiana, then you've got this noir thing and then you've got, I don't know, triplets. It's just bonkers. But in, in a really, really incredible way. There's just so much talent crammed into this film. Yeah. And shout out to Oscar Levant, who's one of my favourite mm. pop culture icons. Oh, good. Okay, thank you. I do. I have told you this before, Anders, but I feel like Oscar Levant has been reborn in you. <gasps> and that you are You human. have top. Thank you. I... <laughs> I feel like that needs to be publicly acknowledged, everyone. <laughs> okay, you just you. need to I get a piano. That. I know. I know. And like work on my scale a bit. But yeah, he's just... He's such an interesting figure, such an interesting figure. There's all these amazing um, old talk show clips on YouTube, which I'd really recommend watching. He's so witty and dark. Mm. I believe that he was the one who said, I knew Doris Day before she was a virgin. I think that was Oscar Levant who said that, that very famous quote. Anyway, okay. Can I just like talk for a little while longer and mention yes. some more? I was going to say honourable mentions, nearly, yeah. but not quite. I have so many. I wanted to do an honourable mention to a film that I've not seen, but um, Faye Dunaway playing Joan Crawford in what's the film? Mummy Dearest. Mummy Dearest. Yes. yes. It um, fits in our theme. But I've it fits not in seen. our theme, and I did. Someone mentioned it to me. Um, and I said no because I really, really don't like that film for what it did to Faye Dunaway's career because she I, – I, I hate I hate it because she took it on and she – I'm not sure what she was thinking when she took it on. I have heard her say or read about her saying it and I can't recall, but basically it ruined her career mm. because all she was known for was this um, very, very camp and larger-than-life kind of portrayal of Joan Crawford and, it, you know, the, it's con- – it's, a contentious issue one way or the other, what Joan Crawford did with her children or to her children. Mm, um, yeah. But that, you know, kind of, I don't think anyone would hire Faye Dunaway after that or just sort of, you know, it kind of, it ruined her career. But again, that has an interesting angle when we're thinking about aging movie stars and in roles on screen and then also in their careers. Yeah. So, so it sounds like it deserves a mention, but not necessarily top three placing. Yeah. Which we've yeah, just given it. So hats I off to it's, us. A, it's an important it's historical scary. document for sure. Um, and very briefly, uh, if we're thinking about ageing stars in films, late career Lauren Bacall is incredible. Yes. Well, one of my honourable mentions oh. is The Fan by Edward Bianchi in 1981. It's kind of a horror slasher film. Yeah. She's stalked by a crazy fan. And I remember not really liking this film very much. And the outcome is that he's a crazy fan. And I think in the end it's revealed that he is a gay man and he has all of these like pathological hatreds of himself. And so what it's doing, you know, in that kind of way is is fairly complex. Um, I I can't remember much about it, but I do remember this um, brilliant shot of her in her lift Um, And she's kind of, I think, quite distressed at the time or whatever, but her reflection is um, – appears several times in the mirrors around the walls of the lift and just what it's doing with kind of that idea of reflection and also historically in in Hollywood films, um, you know, glamour Mm. repeated um, many times. Like the ending of All About Eve. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Um, And that there – I think – the stalker comes into her hallway and stabs a painted portrait of Lauren Bacall um, on the wall or maybe stabs a photo or something anyway. But, yeah, wow. like, it's incredible. It's actually screening at Cinemaniacs in a few months, um, the Melbourne Film Collective. Um, I'm not sure. You'll have to check out their, their calendar. But it is screening this year at Cinemaniacs. I also wanted to mention... These Old Broads, which oh, is, a, yeah. I think, a TV movie um, written by Carrie Fisher for her mother. So starring Debbie Reynolds, Joan Collins, Elizabeth Taylor and – oh, Shirley MacLaine. Oh, my God. That was the reason why I mentioned it. Anyway, so Shirley MacLaine, Joan Collins and Debbie Reynolds are three 
stars kind of from the 60s. They were all in a movie together called Boy Crazy, which was a big hit. And then that's re-released and Elizabeth – and it, it's kind of a big hit and Elizabeth Taylor is a producer and wants to make a big, you know, reunion show with the three of them. Um, the, what's, you know, kind of funny about it is that they all hate each other. And it's, it is a little bit um, self-referential because in the film Elizabeth Taylor and Debbie Reynolds have a fight you know, kind of they fight about Elizabeth Taylor taking taking um, Debbie Reynolds' boyfriend or husband at the time, um, you know, which is a reference to Eddie Fisher. Anyway, yeah, you know, right. there's a lot of kind of real-life stuff inserted into this film um, and it's it's just very, very good. It's a lot of fun. Um, and The Star, directed by Stuart Heisler in 1952, also starring Betty Davis and her Oscar. And oh, yeah. Anyway, right. it's kind of this other interesting commentary on, on Hollywood at the time. Actually, I have one more, which is a terrible film, I think, from memory. I have seen it, 101 Nights by Agnes Varda from 95 with Michelle Piccoli as this guy called Monsieur Cinema. Have you guys seen this? Anyway, he's like losing his memory and so he hires a young woman to tell him stories of his past. And I don't know whether it's real or a dream or like a hallucination because he's so old and sick, but like all of these famous people come visit him and tell him like – what happened in their careers, including like Catherine Deneuve and Jean Bureau. <laughs> so I don't know. It's really wacky. I remember it not being very good, but I am so curious by the, the premise. <laughs> kind of want to return to it. Yeah. I love it. <laughs> if you get really old, can you do a podcast called that, please? Just, <laughs> you can just regale us with stories about movies you've seen. If, when. Sorry, when, of course. Yes, yes, indeed. Great. Well, thank you all very much for making it to the end of episode 45 of Cultural Capital. If you want to rate or review us on iTunes, we'd be really grateful. And you can follow us on Facebook at Cultural Capital Podcast. We're on Twitter at the Cat Pod, and you can find me at Andy Ricky. I'm at Anders Furs. And I'm at Eloise Low Ross. And we think you're great. Mm-hmm.